If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment. I'm Pete Wargent. I'm here, I'm here with Chris Bates. Basie, how are you? Life's good, Pete. It's, um, you know, last week before Christmas, I've got my birthday in a couple of days. Um, exhausted, ready for a break, but, um, you know, doing well. How, how's things going over there? We're absolutely flat out trying to get everything finished before Christmas. I've sensed that other people are winding down for the Christmas break now, but not us because, yeah, we've just been at full capacity last few months and trying to get as many properties over the line as we can. It's a difficult time of year to get people to respond quickly, but we're trying our best. Uh, So, yeah, uh, foot to the floor all the way through for us. But, um, yeah, I definitely get the sense from speaking to people around the traps that a lot of people's minds have moved on to more festive activities and uh, who can blame them so yeah it's um looking forward to the break um so yeah thanks for joining everyone today uh, every morning at 7 a.m you'll get our two cents podcast episode waiting for you in your podcast player and we basically cover the big three property news stories of the week so chris there's been a bit going on hasn't there yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I've said it multiple times on this. I think that uh, buying is going to happen all the way up till Christmas. And I actually think January is going to be really busy. And um, we've seen that. We've had six clients buy in the last week, um, you know, three on the weekend, three at the start of this week. And um, lots of clients, even clients going to auctions on Saturday this week. It's right up till Christmas. Um, and even just going around my local area and I track all listings, you know, locally. Um, there's a lot of sold stickers going on, you know, the average stuff, to be honest. Um, so, you know, people are meeting the market. They don't want to see their property sit on the market over January and become stale. Um, and buyers are also a little bit, you know, um, agitated, I guess. They're wanting to make make a deal happen because they don't, you know, that, that waiting period for a couple of months, people have been burnt there quite a lot in the past where, you know, over that period, more and more buyers enter, but no properties enter the market. And so that demand supply seesaw starts to get a lot more demand on the seesaw and not much supply. So you can see how that really, um, 
counterweights and it can potentially surprise the market in February and the market can come back much stronger than it was just six weeks ago. So I'm um, not saying that's what's going to happen, but we are we are on all-time low listings, you know, particularly in the housing markets. Unit markets not the same, but um, and I do think the buyers are there. They're getting more and more confidence around the, the rate story longer term. Yeah, they're a bit more concerned that rates have gone up a bit, but they're still willing to meet the market, particularly because the rental crisis has, you know, doesn't look like it's going to go away for some time. So let's have a, what's the big three stories this week, Pete? Um, always looking forward to this chat. Yeah, so first one, uh, Roselle Interchange Disaster. You might have seen this whole a slew of articles covering this. Um, the West Connex was a multi-billion dollar motorway project so that was supposed to make Sydney run more smoothly. doesn't seem to be playing out that way so far. Uh, so a few different stories that spin out of that in terms of demographic trends and so on. Uh, secondly, petrol prices fall 30 cents of the Bowser. Well, that's a really good piece of news because we haven't had much over the past 15 months or so, probably 18 months in terms of inflation. But also the Fed uh, in the US starting to pivot suddenly. So uh, uh, possibly sort of b- uh, better days ahead, I guess, for interest rates after a, a punishing uh, year or so. And then thirdly, a bit of a population growth pushback emerging, not just in Australia, also in a number of other developed economies like the UK and elsewhere. Um, so definitely um, it's become a political issue, something we flagged actually a few months ago on this very podcast, and it it is sort of Hoping interview. We'll take a look at what changes have been proposed and what they actually mean for the housing market. So, Chris, let's start with this Roselle interchange shocker. So, I guess, yeah, the West Connex was, um, you know, it's a multi billion dollar project and was pitched um, as being a sort of a game changer for that part of Sydney. But it's been a bit of a disaster so far. We've got real uh, uh, pinch points, uh, which have been creating huge commuter delays. I saw Rebel Wilson actually. Uh, caused the headline because she had to uh, jump in a helicopter to get into the city for work one day. Uh, I think the the really weird thing here is that, you know, we keep reading that offices are only running at 50% capacity. And yet here we are with these massive uh, sort of uh, traffic delays. And I saw they're looking at trying to extend an extra couple of lanes in there, which I guess is a short-term fix. But it does sort of raise the question, Chris, if we can't function when the offices are only half full, what is going to happen when Sydney grows to 6 million or 7 million and 8 million? I I guess, you know, we talked about maybe um, a year or two ago on on various podcasts is that the global experience seems to be when cities hit that sort of 5 million level, which Sydney and Melbourne both have now, uh, suddenly shit just stops working. You know, all the infrastructure starts creaking and it just gets a bit less livable somehow. And it does seem to be that way. Yeah, I mean, I do think this is one of the stories of the good old Aussie jumping on the bandwagon. Um, and, you know, a lot of people hate roads, um, so they're loving it right now. They're like, why are you designing cities for roads? People are going to use it. So you got them jumping in. I mean, I was at a multiple fourth birthday parties last weekend and, uh, you know, it was the talk of the party, you know, uh, is what's going on there. And I said, I drove on it. You know, I haven't driven on it yet, but I was asking other people who have driven on it, et cetera. Um, I mean, I read an interesting article on this and they sort of said it's doing what it's meant to do. It's meant to funnel traffic, you know. it's um, If that's too difficult, then people go other roads rather than funneling everyone into the, the one road. And uh, I mean, there's always going to be teething issues with uh, change. People don't like change. Um, but I think they will resolve it ultimately you know, we are going to need to invest in infrastructure. And, um, you know, this is a huge project. I think it once it's up and running, 
Uh, it's kind of like the Cross City Tunnel. I remember back, um, you know, I think it would have been 2005 or something like that when I first moved to Sydney. Um, and everyone, oh, I'm not using that. I can just drive through the city um, because it's quicker. Um, I'm pretty sure people don't make that choice anymore. They go through the Cross City Tunnel and pay the, the few dollars that it costs for that. So, um, yeah, I had, and I did have a friend who used it actually and she she said, it was an amazing experience. Um, you know, Google Maps sent her that way because I think the city was big, busy and we we're coming down the south coast. Um, and she said it was just an awesome experience. So she, she didn't have to get into the city. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a, it's one of these things as we get bigger, we're going to have to keep on using infrastructure. But that doesn't mean that it just solves all cha- uh, challenges with travel. I think it's a bit optimistic. Um to think that we still, you know, aren't going to have no traffic. Um, there's still going to be challenges. So as a result of the new junction, we've now got 10 lanes of traffic that basically funnel down or merge into four lanes by the Anzac Bridge. And I guess like, there's no easy fix here. I, I guess the concern is when the Western Harbour Tunnel opens in a few years' time, that's just going to make things even worse. I mean, that's probably a few years away. I must admit, those tunnels freak me out a little bit. I, uh, Yeah, I, uh, I saw there was a new story this week, the Elizabeth Line, in the, the London Underground broke down and people were stuck in one of those trains in the tunnels for a few hours. I was thinking, oh, gee whiz, I would hate that, you know. But I I, I guess this is the thing. There's no sort of um, easy fix for traffic congestion unless we just find other ways for people to get around. I, I think the, the, the thing that sort of caught my eye when I read this uh, sort of story, Chris, or there's multiple articles on it, is that we've also seen in the past week or two uh, the New South Wales... Um, state government talking about uh, rezoning all of those areas close to train stations. And that, you know, last time around when we had the big construction cycle, the traffic was noticeably worse after all those you know, apartments got built. You know, most people have one or maybe sometimes two cars, you know, with each new apartment. And it, you know, if we're going to go through this, uh, you know, building 1.2 million homes in five years, which I can't see happening, by the way, but you know, even the target of that is only going to make the traffic worse. So, so what, what does it mean for the way in which people uh, try to live? Because, you know, people are complaining about trips on the Eastern Distributor, the Cross City Tunnel. Now we've got the Roselle Interchange, which looks like a bit of a shocker, although they're trying to add a couple of extra lanes. Um, you know, are people going to want to try and find ways to drive less? I assume they will. Um, but what does it mean for the popular areas to live? Are people going to cluster around the train stations in units? Are they going to try and find jobs where they don't have to go into the city? What do you reckon? Yeah, I think this whole work from home battle, I think the power has absolutely swung to employers right now and they're mandating days back to the office. But, you know, you can see where uh, housing choices for families are going to start getting limited again because there's just not, not an option besides moving f- further away from the city. That's going to, the employees are going to really demand flexibility, I think, particularly if the job market gets tighter again and the economy starts booming again. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I thought it was the irony of it all, right? So you've got this spaghetti junction issues, you know, the current population can't get to the city. But then in the same week, uh, you know, the state government announced that the Bay's West, which is on the metro line, which is bang where this issue is. Um, he's got a 1.2 kilometer radius around it that now can be high rise. Um, and if you put a circle around that and that station, it's pretty much half of Balmain, um, which I just can't see turning into high rise, to be honest. Um, I think the heritage overlays will, will, will fight that. Um, but apparently, the, um, 
the the rules are that heritage overlays, you know, don't really matter. Um, you know, there will be that that did matter in the past, but this overrides that, and potentially, um, you know, beautiful houses on beautiful streets are going to get knocked down in you know for higher density apartments. I think that's going to be an interesting one to watch. But yeah, absolutely, I think this is as a as a city grows, you know, getting access to public transport becomes more and more important if you need to get into the city, and that's the people you want to own your uh, own want to want your property. Um, because they're usually the ones on the higher incomes, you know, uh, generalising here, and they're usually the ones who are going to have the biggest borrowing capacity. So I was looking at chatting to a uh, first-time buyer listener on this podcast just a couple of days ago. Um, they were looking at a, a cracking apartment, actually, so well done to them. Um, they, uh, you know, an older apartment, inner west, uh, you know, north-facing uh, courtyard, good-sized rooms, you know, a big block of land with a small number of units, Um quieter off the back street so a cracking apartment but it wasn't you know walkable to the train station so we just said look you know how would you get to the train station so you know you can get a bus how easy is it to get to the bus stop oh you know it's only a 300 meter walk okay that's good how often does the bus come oh it comes every five minutes in the morning and five minutes at night time and how long is it on the bus you know it's under five minutes okay cool this is no problem you know even if you you know, yes, and, and the reason why this is okay is because, you know, around the train stations, you're going to get a lot of high-density apartments. And so this is far enough away where it's not going to get up-zoned, but also you can easily get to the train station on, on a bus and there's a bus stop just down the road, you know. And so that's a cracking little apartment. That's um, And so, yeah, I think you've got to be really strategic because I think the, over the last couple of weeks it's been an eye-opening experience to say this is the way the city's going to have to evolve. We're not going to really slow down our population. Sydney isn't full. We're not going to say no more. We're going to grow our population and we're going to do it through higher density. It is coming. Yeah, I remember when I worked in London, nobody used to drive to the office. In fact, nobody used to drive anywhere. You know, people would just try and cluster around the tube stations and get into work. Uh, interestingly, still used to take people 45 minutes, it seems. It doesn't matter where you live. It was always a three quarters of an hour journey, but very few people bothered driving. And actually, a lot of people didn't bother owning cars either. So, yeah, maybe a little sneak preview of what's coming for Sydney. Um, so we've got some good news. Uh, we haven't had much good news on inflation over the 2023, but as the year draws to a close, maybe a bit of a Santa Claus rally coming uh, for the stock market. So uh, second story of the week, petrol prices fall 30 cents at the Bowser. It's funny, whenever I uh, make note of this sort of thing on Twitter, I get immediately get people respond and say, well, I've, I'm still paying $2.20. <laughs> but I guess that this, these are the statistics uh, across the country. So oil prices are down 27%, $67 a barrel. So that's the lowest since July. Uh, petrol prices have fallen about 30 cents at the Bowser. And uh, if you look at what the NRMA is forecasting, of course, those lower oil prices haven't been factored in yet. So we should expect to see further declines over the next few weeks. Does that mean no more rate hikes, lower inflation ahead? Yeah, possibly. I wonder, paradoxically, with lower fuel prices, maybe more cars will actually get back on the road. But uh, I guess there's other factors here too. Um, uh, electricity prices at the wholesale level have been falling and we're just starting to see some discounting offers underway. Justin Fabo, economist, has highlighted this. Um, and I think actually just on the day of recording, Chris, uh, the US has gone for a massive pivot. I think interest rates on hold, uh, the dot plot of the Federal Reserve projecting two to four cuts next year, even more to come in 2025. And market pricing looking for six interest rate cuts in the US 
next year uh, with the first cut potentially as soon as March, 83% likely. But actually just looking around the world, the, the Bank of England is expected to cut next year. New Zealand economy looks like it's sunk into recession on today's numbers. Interest rate cuts to come there. So yeah, Australia might be a bit far behind or a bit further behind on this journey. But suddenly we've just had a whole range of good news. Even six weeks ago, uh, the 10-year bond yield in the US was 5%. Well, now it's 4 I mean, that's just happened in six weeks. And uh, Australia's three-year bond yield is back at six-month lows and dropping away. So finally, it looks like some good news, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if the commentators are going to start saying, well, if the US cutting, we should be cutting because a lot of the argument's been that Aussie uh, RBA rate's not high enough because around the world it's higher. Um, but what happens if they start cutting? Does that mean that we should be cutting? I mean, the, the oil price is a good sort of um, leading indicator, I guess. Um, I mean, what's your take on this, Pete? I mean, if, if we, uh, as you know, households, we start paying less for fuel, uh, businesses start paying less for fuel. Um, I mean, when you're getting your groceries, you know, Woolies pays less for fuel. I mean, do you think this is a really good sign that, you know, the costs for households are going to start dropping, the costs for businesses um, and for services and products, I mean, products more particularly, but... Um, yeah, is that sort of why oil prices matter so much and um, why this is a good sign for future inflation? Yeah, oil prices are important for two reasons. Firstly, because, yeah, as you mentioned, petrol is the biggest expense that you actually see when you're driving around day to day. It's there in massive font, you know, 170 cents per litre unleaded. And if it changes, you see it. That's the, it's the most visible sign of uh, costs in the economy. So that's one reason. But also, of course, oil factors into production costs as well all around the world. And it's weird, you know, if, if you went back um, to early October when uh, conflict was breaking out, I, did, I don't remember anybody forecasting oil prices you know, at $67 a barrel. If anything, people were talking about the potential for a spike. I think what's been quite unusual is that we've had a quiet boom in oil production in the US. I think um, you know, people aren't really that keen on telegraphing it because it kind of it goes against the sort of climate friendly agenda of the, uh, the the government over there. But there's a lot of oil being produced. Um, demand is falling generally around the world because of higher interest rates. And yeah, we've just got a bit of a glut happening there. And uh, well, yeah, it's good news. We haven't had much uh, good news on inflation for quite a long time. And now suddenly just a whole range of things are coming together at the same time. Uh, U.S. inflation was just 0.1% in November and the PPI was flat. So, you know, you can actually say, yes, OK, year on year inflation in the U.S. is still 3%. But if you look at most uh, the most recent months, well, the, the, the sort of the inflationary pulse has really gone away. And I, I guess that's what's uh, driven the pivots in the stance. Now, if you look at Australia, Yes, we've got interest rate cuts priced in over the next 18 months, but it's a, it's a much sort of shallower uh, sort of downturn, maybe a couple of cuts over the next 18 months. But yeah, as we've said often before, when the rates start falling, often they, they go quick and hard. So uh, I wouldn't rule that out either, depending on how things play out over the next few months. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting one, right? So what happens if that, uh, you know, the... You know, anyone can find this if you just sort of ASX tracker and you can just sort of see the forecasted, you know, rates over the next year or two. But, I mean, what happens if that starts going, you know, 1% of cuts next year, you know, and that's all over the SMH and it's on the AFR and it's all over Channel 9 News and huge cuts are coming. I mean, how's that going? That's got to stimulate demand pretty quickly, right, before those cuts actually happen. 
people will believe that they're actually going to happen. And so, you know, I think this is what could potentially surprise the market next year is that people get a little bit of FOMO because they're like, I don't want to get in once these rate cuts happen because I know I'm going to pay higher prices. Still very low stock. People can't upgrade. That's the reality. You know, people who are in a $1 million house and they want to go to a $2 million house might not have the borrowing capacity to do that. So they're stuck there, you know, they, um, and they uh, don't want to do it anyway because of higher interest rates or they've got, you know, potential challenges with work. And um, and so I think low supplies of good assets is going to continue on all the way through um, the autumn period next year. And if that story shifts on low supply, it wouldn't take much for that to be quickly factored into prices and, and people use all their borrowing capacities and then have to go to a cheaper property and then that pushes that price up, et cetera. So watch out for the surprise next year, I would say, at this point, um, unless this inflation becomes stickier and the, the whole story reverses. But all signs are pointing in the right direction, you'd have to admit. I'll go one further than that. I think the bearish property forecast for 2024 will just be wrong. I think... If you look at all of the factors, the fundamentals, we've had record high population growth, we've got record low vacancy rates, rents are still soaring in a lot of parts of the country. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, listings have been low, pretty tight overall, especially quality listings. I, I think there has been uh, some selling from investors offloading their sort of worst performing properties, you know, the least preferred in the portfolio, uh, particularly cash flow focused investors. There's definitely been some units being offloaded, but generally quality stock is just so tight. You know, that's why we're so busy, I guess, as buyers agents, because people just can't find stuff to buy and they're outsourcing it to a pro. But yeah, and I think uh, the one factor that's been pulling the other way all year has been interest rates going up. But, you know, if, if that story um uh, changes the narrative changes and people start thinking well cuts are coming over the next year i i, I think that the downturn predictions will just prove to be wrong basically so look as you, you know always uh, with a disclaimer could be wrong but that's what i think anyway um so uh, chris uh, on the, the third story now this is something we talked about some months back uh, a population growth pushback emerging not just in australia but around the world so Australia, um, it was reported over the weekend just gone that Australia was going to announce a new migration policy this week to bring down population growth to a more sustainable level. It's interesting how, to me anyway, just uh, how many countries around the world like Canada and New Zealand and the UK and Australia have just been tracking almost in lockstep. You know, we, we had the, the, the sort of uh, population growth basically stalled for seven quarters in Australia and then it's come absolutely rocketing back. We've got record high population growth in Canada. It's over 1 million. Uh, UK, all-time high population growth. I think net migration there was about three quarters of a million. Record high population growth in Australia, dot, dot, dot. And Canada is going down the rezoning route. So they're looking to build like fury. Australia's announced the same thing. And uh, But yeah, there's definitely, people are starting to get annoyed, frankly, uh, by you know struggling traffic and infrastructure there's been a regime change, so new governments in where have we had Argentina, we've had a reactionary or populist um, uh, election victory in the Netherlands and other countries as well. It looks like the UK government's going to get punted fairly soon, uh, maybe Canada as well due for a change. So I think, um, and New Zealand, in fact. Um, so yes, yeah, so what has the Australian government announced? Well, Migration cuts potentially, I think, so tighter rules for foreign students. I think um, the AFR estimated potentially 100,000 fewer students than might otherwise have been the case. So there's a bit of a crackdown on 
English language testing. Um, but at the same time, it does seem like a bit of a fig leaf policy um, because um, they're going to be fast tracking uh, visas for specialist skill migrants with 135k plus income. So, yes, maybe um, the foreign student numbers might be a bit less than otherwise might have been the case. But I think that the, the thing is, just like with inflation, the year on year growth in the population was going to come down anyway. I think you know the number of the net growth in the number of students was always going to taper off and therefore year on year population growth will fall from 650 to 550 to 450 and it the government will look like it's done something but actually we've still got a pretty high rate of population growth and a bit of tweaking around the edges probably doesn't make that much difference uh yeah i mean you're right i think they just want to feel uh seem like they're doing something right and um Attacking international students is very popular. Um, whether they actually do it and whether it makes a huge impact, like you say, and whether it was going to happen naturally anyway because the universities are full, right, and they can't take more people. And so uh, I think, and then on the other side of the coin, they're saying, hang on a sec, if you're on a decent wicket, um, you can come into the country quicker, um, which is going to actually stimulate uh, demand for uh, both rentals um, and because they're the ones on basically what's happening in a rental crisis, the people who are earning more money are able to push out people who are earning less money um, and they're at a bid higher than what the rent, the you know, the agent wants because uh, so it's a, I don't think this is going to do much um, for anything. If anything, it's just going to bring forward future housing demand by prioritising people who are earning higher incomes. Um, and I think we've got massive skill shortages. I think the, the whole population debate um, is, is you know, hard to argue when we've got, you know, we want to build more homes. Okay, we'll need more construction workers. You know, we've got lots of gaps in lots of different industries and we haven't got the talent here and we haven't trained them up through our universities. And so we need these people to, to keep on growing our economy. And um, so I think that, and then, I mean, in COVID, we saw how there was issues getting baristas and people working in our restaurants and cleaners and jobs that a lot of Aussies don't want to do. Um, and so I would say that, uh, yeah, this story is going to continue to be an issue in as our country grows, you know, population stories, but I don't think the government really cares. I think ultimately they're just going to keep growing the population because that keeps growing our economy and that keeps them in power. So that's the, the reality. These are all just, um, you know, a little band-aids on the overall problem, but nothing I believe is going to change longer term. You made a really good point there. I think the government has really been very hard done by here. A lot of the issues they really inherited from the coalition government. Um, and you rightly pointed out, there was a period there where we had uh, no baristas, there was uh, massive skill shortages across uh, sectors like retail, there were no backpackers or working holiday makers to fill a lot of these roles. We actually needed this snapback in migration. And the number of temporary visa holders has gone, well, it's come back, it's bounced back by 1 million. But that was actually needed to solve the, the skill shortage. Uh, it's easy to sort of turn around and blame the Labour government for that. But that that was actually a requirement. And actually, yes, the population growth will naturally settle back to a more normalised level. And some of this sort of record growth is really just a snapback from uh, the decline that we saw for nearly two years there where there was no population growth at all. Um, so Australia's population will close out the year at about 27 million. Uh, so as if uh, the COVID or the pandemic never happened. We're basically back on the same trend that we were on before. But yeah, so there's a couple of other changes I didn't mention. So the government will lift the minimum wage for foreign skilled workers 
to $70,000, but that won't kick in until July 2024, by which time we'll be talking about something else. So I, I think um, uh, the, the UK government, uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, has announced very similar plans. You know, they're, they're going to slash migrants arriving in the UK by a few hundred thousand. But I guess that's coming from an all-time high, and they're going to do similar things, lifting the minimum pay for foreign-skilled workers. So it's, it's intriguing how... A lot of the measures uh, being announced in Canada, UK, New Zealand, Australia, that they also almost seem to be moving in lockstep or just uh, almost following each other. But I think a lot of this is really seen to be doing something. Uh, and as you said, actually, if it means fast tracking the higher paid uh, workers, well, that's probably, if anything, um, a boost uh, from a housing market perspective. Um, so, yeah, a lot of similar challenges facing uh, these countries around the world, it seems. Yeah, and inequality is just going to continue to get worse. Um, that's what's happening absolutely in the housing market right now. The people buying are on higher incomes. The people, and the reason they're able to buy is they've got a lot of intergenerational wealth coming through families. Uh, I mean, I wasn't in this camp, absolutely not. Um, you know, uh, passing money down generations. But I just think that you know it's going to get t- more and more challenging. I mean, tech's completely disrupting the mortgage broking industry, as an example. We're having to think you know, a few years ahead and go, and, and 2024 is going to bring amazing um, innovation with tech. Um, but, you know, a lot of brokers are probably looking at that. This is just an example in my own situation where I'm going, oh, don't worry, I'm fine. Don't worry, I'm very valuable. You know, clients will always use me. My advice is, you know, there's always complexity. Tech can't do that. Whereas we believe the opposite. We believe that tech is going to absolutely change the industry. And um, if anything, I'm, as soon as a new tech gets announced, I'm there, hey, mate, well, tell me what you're doing. How's it working? Where are you going? What's on your product roadmap? I want to know exactly where they're going um, so I can pivot with them. Um, you know, and if more people are moving to the country and look, and they've got skills like what you do, you need to be upskilling yourself. So I think it's all about increasing your human capital for the world that we're building um, rather than, I guess, seeing it and go, oh, this is unfair and this is because I don't think the system's going to change. I think you've got to try to outplay the system and so... That would be my take on this is that um, it is going to start marginalising more and more people. Inequality is going to get worse and worse. Um, and technology doesn't enhance equality. It actually does the opposite. It, it, it starts to allow people who are in power to leverage technology rather than leverage people. Um, and that's much more efficient. You can see the big Facebooks and tech companies of the world. That's how their profit per person is so high than a lot of other industries. Um, yeah, what's your take on this, this story, Peter, around population? Do, do you... You know, even like this week, Bernard Salt did an article on population. I do love the demographic guys and, and Simon Kustermarker makes some great points considering he's a migrant to the country like most of us. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, there is. You know, Sydney's going to be 7, 8 million. Melbourne's going to be bigger than, than Sydney. Like this is on pretty conservative growth rates. This isn't like 3 4% population growth a year. Um do you think this is really going to be the reality we've got to start to face is how are we going to you know, position ourselves in a bigger Australia? Oh, that's the route we're going down. Whether or not it's the right thing is a whole other question. But, you know, I guess the, you can always um, have two different views, what you think should happen and what will happen. And it just seems to be that's the model. I, I think basically, you know, if you look at demographics, if you went back to about 40 years ago, uh, countries like the UK were... I was a young nipper at that time. Um, yeah, the population growth just completely plateaued. And then governments realized that um, the replacement rate uh, just wasn't high enough. Um, so births 
just weren't keeping pace with deaths and it looked like the population was going to roll over. And then since that time, they've just gone hell for leather on immigration. And uh, yeah, Australia sort of got on board with that bandwagon, but really ramped it up uh, through the mining boom years. But the interesting thing is after the mining construction boom peaked, we never stopped. You know, we just kept on going 400,000, 400,000. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, obviously we're not going to keep going at 650,000 plus per annum. It's just not it's just not possible um, to build for that. But, yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised if going forward. In fact, you can even see it in the Treasury projections. We're probably still going to run a relatively high rate of immigration. Most new migrants go to Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, some people leak out, I guess, to southeast Queensland over time. But, yeah, if you project it forward... That's going to take Greater Sydney to six and then seven million and then eight million in time. Greater Melbourne, the same. Uh, Brisbane's growing quickly. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I do think there's some counter arguments here that people aren't really thinking about, you know, because you're almost completely re- replacing the incumbent population over time. But, you know, I suppose, you know, Australia's a country built on immigration and that's the route we're going down. Whether Whether we like it or not, we're going to have big cities, I guess. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I do think there's going to be a real challenge on housing, you know, infrastructure we spoke about there with Roselle, but, you know, how they solve this housing affordability would be a big story next year. And, you know, you can already see little leakages coming out um, very strategically from the uh, the governments around how they're going to target, um, you know, foreign investors and target vacancy and maybe give more powers to build to rent and you know, they're going to have to start coming up with some some big policy changes next year. But unfortunately, they go back to all the, the old tricks in the book is, you know, first home buyer grants and first home no stamp duty. And all that does is inflate demand when demand isn't a problem. It's really supply. And so I wonder how they're going to uh, stimulate that. And I think that just really watching this space next year is going to be really enlightening is how they, um, they make some big longer term changes that potentially could unlock a lot of supply. It sure is. Yeah, I think the, the traffic story is just going to be an ongoing issue over the next few years. The Western Sydney Harbour Tunnel uh, opens up and uh, the population continues to grow. Uh, so just to wrap up on this week, yeah, some uh, pushback, I guess, on record population growth. But really, the policies announced, uh, you know, they, they're tweaks at the margin. They're not going to be fundamental changes by any stretch, even if there's some crackdown on foreign student intake or people using uh, international student visas as a backdoor way into the country. Um, yeah, but I, I think, um, yeah, the thing for me this week, the Fed pivot is huge and um, uh, falling things like oil prices, fuel prices, electricity prices, all of that's got to be good for the interest rate outlook. And I'll, I'll go so far to say, as I think that the, the bearish property forecast for 2024 will prove to be wrong on that basis. So, yeah, uh, excellent uh, chat as always, Chris. Now, we're going to have a bit of fun, I think, over the next week or two, uh, doing a the retrospective on this year and an outlook for 2024. And uh, I think we've got one more uh, two cents to sneak in before uh, Christmas as well, potentially. I, I can't do the maths in my head. Um, but, yeah, if you want to catch me, uh, Pete Wardian Blogspots, my daily blogger at Pete Wardian on Twitter. But definitely uh, subscribe for the Rask podcast and send us in your questions. And if you want to catch Chris, um, Chris, it's uh, Blusk. Uh, where people can track you down too, right? Yeah, absolutely. The show notes, um, people would have heard it all before and um, the team would absolutely love to help you. Um, it's interesting. A lot of people would think, oh, 
you know, it's really quiet. You know, everyone doesn't want to, um, you know, look at their finances, but you'd be very surprised is that, you know, this time of year we're extremely busy, um, you know, and particularly in January. So absolutely, well, our team are all here. Um, we are having a decent break, um, but, you know, if you are looking to get your numbers sorted for 2024, um, get in touch and um, absolutely we can turn some strategies around for you and give you some real good clarity on what you can and can't do. So, yeah, I wish everyone a great Sunday. And, um, you know, it's my birthday yesterday, which is, you know, it's not really my birthday yesterday because we're recording this on Thursday, but it is because you're listening to this on Sunday. So happy birthday to me. And I wish everyone a good last week of work. Beautiful. Thanks, Chris. 21 again. So uh, <laughs> look forward to catching up next week. Cheers. All right. Thanks, Pete. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete, or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.